going to study in that Pew Bible on page 856. Uh, we're going to finish a story that we started last week in Matthew chapter 2. While you're turning to Matthew chapter 2, uh, let me give you a quick uh, preview of coming attractions. Next Sunday, uh, we're going to begin a new sermon series. <clears throat> um, February 22nd, 1948. A group of people met in a home here in Hingham for the very first time under the name of Second Baptist Church Hingham, later to be renamed South Shore Baptist Church. Uh, this February will be the 75th anniversary of the work God is doing in and through South Shore Baptist Church. It's a beautiful, beautiful anniversary. And I'm so proud to be a part of this church's legacy, uh, the men and women who have... Um, been a light for the gospel of Jesus Christ on the South Shore. And so starting next Sunday, uh, we're going to do um, a, a pretty simple sermon series through our membership covenant. As members of this church, we've made eight covenants uh, to the Lord and to each other, and we're going to focus on those over the course of the following six weeks leading up to uh, February 19th. Uh, which we'll acknowledge as our anniversary Sunday. And so I want to encourage you to be here with us. Uh, when we finish that series, we're going to jump into the Old Testament book of Micah. I'm excited about spending time uh, with that prophet. And uh, I am convinced that we are going to eat well in the Word of God uh, in the coming months. And I'm excited to feast with you uh, in these studies. We're in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Uh, several years ago, I had LASIK surgery on my eyeballs. They zapped my face with a laser, and then I could see things great without my glasses. The results were amazing. Um, but the, that experience was not nearly as incredible as when I first got glasses as a teenager. Uh, I remember when uh, my dad was driving me away from the eye doctor with my glasses on for the very first time. Just, I'm looking out the door, or excuse me, out the window of the car, you know, like a dog. Just, I, I'm looking at everything. I, I didn't realize you were supposed to see leaves on the trees, or words on signs, or hands on clocks. I just, I thought fuzzy vision was normal vision. And uh, so I was stunned uh, when I could, uh, like even in my classrooms, I could look up and see the numbers and the hands on the clocks, and, and it, it was stunning to me how much things changed for me. Before those glasses, I didn't really understand how bad my vision truly was, but with them, my whole view of the world changed. And similarly, people of faith view the world differently after coming to Jesus. Before our salvation, we perceived the world in one way, but after our salvation, we view our lives in this world in a totally different way, and that's all because of Jesus. And this experience of seeing the world different is something that we both know and we are still coming to know in our relationship with Christ. In Matthew chapter 2 helps us even more as we develop our understanding of, of what this world is and what our place in it is like. As Matthew describes the events following the birth of the Christ child, he shows us how fundamentally different reality has become. Everything has changed with the incarnation of Christ. 
Now, to be sure, in Matthew's account here in chapter 2, we're still far from the events of Easter, but already the incarnation is a history-shaping moment. Now, although the light of God has come into this world, the darkness is still pressing all around. And Matthew tells us of a time when the darkness roared, but the light was not overcome by it. As we look ahead to a new year, for sure there's many wonderful moments to come, but there are also many challenging moments to come. And so it's essential that we allow Jesus to grab us by the eyeballs and change our view of the world so that we would see things through the lens of Christ. And so my goal today in preaching from Matthew chapter 2 is to fix your spiritual eyes. I want to correct your faith vision by showing you three ways Jesus shapes our view of reality. Now, last week, we began by looking at this brief episode in the life of the Holy Family, of Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Jesus has been born to Mary. Wise men from the east followed a star to Jerusalem. They came in search of the newborn king, and so they went to the place where kings reside. They went to the capital city, uh, and they went to Herod's palace. Herod was the Rome-appointed governor over the region of Judea. They visit with King Herod and they say, where's the new baby king? We're here to worship him, celebrate him. And Herod was surprised by this news. Not only was he surprised, but he was deeply threatened. And so uh, he tells the wise men, go find this newborn king. And when you find him, come back and tell me where he is. I want to worship him too. That's not the plan at all. Herod wants to destroy the newborn king. The wise men find the holy family. They worship the king. They give him gifts. And then they are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. And instead, they quietly yeet back to the place from whence they came. Uh, and that's where our story picks up. Follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 16. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So this is an intensely dark moment in history, and in this 
dark moment, we find the light of Christ to guide us. And Matthew gives us three ways Jesus shapes our view of reality. Here's how Jesus fixes our vision. First of all, he gives us a new view of sorrow. In this story, from the very beginning, we're giving this intensely sorrowful moment. And in this, Jesus gives us a new way of viewing it. So Herod being outwitted by the Magi, being outwitted by the Lord himself who directed the Magi, flies into a rage, gives this order that all the infant boys under age two in and around Bethlehem should be killed. It's a moment in history known among Christian people as the massacre of the innocents. And Matthew's the only person in written history to record this event. There's no other New Testament writer who describes this event. There's no other writer outside of the Bible that records this event. And because of this fact, because Matthew's the only one in written history who writes about this, uh, there are many critics who have said over the course of the last 2,000 years that this is a made-up story. Matthew just crafted this story, and in fact, uh, it bears such resemblance to a, a story out of the book of Exodus that it can't be real. It's Matthew inventing a story just to bolster his claims as he lays out the story of the birth of Christ. So what should we do with these criticisms? What do we do with the fact that Matthew alone tells us this story? It parallels this story in the Exodus. Well, first, I want to just speak generally to criticisms of the Bible. Look, from time to time in our lives, uh, we're going to have questions about the reliability of the Bible. We may have questions that we come up with just over the course of our own study and our own experience with the Bible, or we may hear criticisms of the Bible from others. Someone may send you a link to a quick clip on YouTube, or maybe there's some creator on TikTok whose whole platform is on biblical criticism. And so you may stumble across these with a bit of alarm and a bit of concern. These, these criticisms are concerning. I don't know how to answer them. I don't know how to respond to them. Is, is what they're saying true? What should we do with it? But Here's where I want you to begin. I want you to realize that there is no other book in human history that has faced the scrutiny the Bible has faced. Not a single other book has been studied, ripped apart, turned upside down, studied the way the Bible has been studied over the course of the entirety of human history. Amid all that scrutiny, amid all the study, amid all the criticisms, the Bible remains reliable and trustworthy. There is no criticism of the Bible that is new to mankind. There's no such thing anymore as a hot take when it comes to biblical criticism. It may be hot in the sense that it's new to you, but it's not hot in, this, in the scope of biblical studies. The Bible has taken every criticism, has weathered every criticism, and remains trustworthy, reliable, and true. So when you come across these criticisms, here's what I want you to do. I want you to engage them. I want you to study them. I want you to work to understand the position of the critic. And then I want you to inform yourself with important scholarship, good scholarship, good understanding, so that you can understand the nature of the criticism and how it's rebuffed. 
Christians do not have an uninformed faith. We don't believe because we refuse to educate ourselves. We have an informed faith, and there's no criticism that we have to be afraid of or fear. So when those criticisms come up, engage, study, find good resources, and uh, inform your faith all the more. So did Matthew invent this story? Doesn't seem likely. The assumption that this brutal event would have been recorded by other historians if it had really happened, that's a short-sighted assumption. You see, we need to keep in mind the scope of this massacre, especially when compared to all the brutality that Herod was responsible for over the course of his life. Bethlehem is a small village. At the time of Jesus, maybe about 500 people, maybe. And so this edict was given uh, just for children in Bethlehem and around Bethlehem. Historians estimate maybe about a couple of dozen children met the end of their lives because of Herod's order. To the people of Bethlehem, that was an intense injustice and a monumental grief. To readers of this story, it is a monumental brutality. For Herod, it was just another day. It was not even in the top ten of brutal acts that he himself was responsible for. It's short-sighted to assume that historians of his day would have taken note of such an act. It was a brutal time. He was a brutal man. And this, in the grand scheme of Herod's life, was a small act of horrific violence. So Matthew describes here Bethlehem's grief. It's an intense grief, and he describes it using a memory from another sad moment in Israel's history. What Matthew's given us is a very real historical act, and then he couches it with a memory of grief from Israel's past. And so in verses 17 and 18, he quotes from Jeremiah 31, 15. Look at it with me in your Bible. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Matthew says this. He says, Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. So on a surface level, what it looks like is Matthew's just telling us this was an intensely sad event, and somehow that fulfills a prophecy that said this sad thing would happen. Uh, but it's important when you come across quotations like this in the New Testament uh, that you give yourself time to go back to the origin of it and to sit in that quotation for a while to find out why it is the writer used this. So why does Matthew quote from Jeremiah 31. Well, centuries before Matthew, God's people in the kingdom of Judah were overrun by the Babylonian army and their king, Nebuchadnezzar. Having conquered Judah, Nebuchadnezzar implemented this brutal policy of exile. So he gathered the residents of Judah to their deportation place, the place from which they would be deported. It was a town called Ramah in Judah. And Ramah is not far from Bethlehem. 
He gathered them there in mass before shipping them across the desert, around the desert, back to the capital of Babylon. And so when Jeremiah, who was present for these events, describes what's happening on that day, uh, he tells us, or he depicts Rachel, who is the personification of the mothers of Israel mourning for their children as they're being carried away. Rachel is not present in Jeremiah 31. She's long dead. Her grave is in Ramah. She is a witness from the grave. And when Jeremiah speaks of Rachel's tears, he's speaking poetically. He is personifying the grief of Israel at their deportation and at the death of the nation. It's as if they are no more. And so Jeremiah gives us this vivid description of, of grief, not just from this one moment in history, but of this total collapse of God's people. Here's this grief at the exile of God's people and the loss of their nation in Jeremiah 31, but that's just in verse 15. If you were to keep reading from Jeremiah 31, 15 on, the rest of that chapter is full of hope from the mouth of God. The grief of verse 15 is met with hope starting in verse 16, hope that sounds like this. This is what the Lord says, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for the reward for your work will come. Look, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will all know me from the least to the greatest of them, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. And so in this moment in history, Jeremiah quotes or gives us this, this uh, understanding of grief using Rachel's tears as the personification of that grief. But that is met immediately with powerful, hope-filled promises from God. A hope that his people will return home one day and a hope that a Messiah will come who will institute a new covenant for God's people and will rescue them to the uttermost, not just from the enemy from Babylon, but the enemy from within, the enemy of their own sin. Now, in the time between Nebuchadnezzar and Herod, God's people experienced countless horrific reasons to weep. And all of those weeping people had grief coupled with this promise from Jeremiah. But now with the birth of Christ, we have this grief coupled with a promise fulfilled. It's one thing to grieve with the hope of a promise to come. It's another thing to grieve with a promise fulfilled from the Word of God seen in the incarnation of Christ. Matthew's quotation of Jeremiah is not just describing the intensity of the grief of Bethlehem, but he's reminding his readers of the promise that turns our weeping to joy, our ashes into beauty, our darkness into light. It's the promise fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. Are you with me so far? I hope you're with me because this is unbelievable what Matthew does with Jeremiah. And this is why the Apostle Paul can say that Christian people do not grieve as those who have no hope. Christians do, in fact, grieve. It's not a sin to grieve. 
But we should experience our sorrows with the confidence that God is bringing to an end every sorrow-inducing situation. And He will bring us into that place where there are no more tears. Although we wept with Rachel in Ramah, we will rejoice with God's people in that holy city. We're not long for this sin-marked world, friends. And our redemption is closer than we realize. With the coming of Christ, we have a new understanding of our sorrow's finiteness and ultimate demise. And when I face that sad day, I want, I want Jesus to have my eyes. I want to view it through the lens of His coming and the hope of a promise fulfilled. So Jesus gives us a new view of sorrow. second thing he does is he gives us a new view of power. He gives us a new view of power. Verse 19 begins with three important words. After Herod died. Herod is dead. Almost written just in passing. If you're speed reading, it might not even register. Herod is dead. Now, look, Matthew, as a writer, he is full of detail and creativity. He begins his gospel with a detailed genealogy of Jesus. And then he goes on to describe the contents of multiple holy visitations to different people. He does his homework. He gathers details and information. He's given us a detailed dialogue between Herod and the Magi. He's given us the information that the Magi received in their holy visitation from the Lord. But when it comes to the end of Herod, he simply says, Herod died. That's it. Now, now the ancient historian Josephus, he provided graphic details of Herod's death. It was a really gruesome death, not fit for a Sunday morning crowd. But Matthew, he almost certainly had access to the same information Josephus had access to. He could, I think, he could have included all of the gore, all of the details, but we don't get any of it, and why is that? Just a guess on my part, but I think that what Matthew is telling us is that vindication in this story is not found supremely in the gore of Herod's death, but in the flourishing of the Holy Family. Now, there are certainly places in the Bible where the enemies of God's people meet graphic ends. I'm thinking of King Ehud at the point of, oh, excuse me, King Eglon at the point of Ehud's left-handed sword, or when Sisera met Jael's tent peg. Right? Or when Haman hung on Haman's gallows. Right? We've got these graphic details throughout the Bible. Here we just get Herod died. That's all there is to it. I, I think Matthew wants our focus to be on the almighty hand of God, not the gruesome death of Herod. He, he wants us to see that God's powerful enemies are dispatched with a whimper. But his humble servants flourish under his protection. 
Now, when Herod died, his scheme against the Christ child also died. So the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph again and instructed him, it's time for the Holy Family to return back to Egypt. Matthew's wording in verse 21, I think, is really important. It captures my attention anyways. It says, Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. Some of Israel's most profound historical moments include wording like this, they entered the land of Israel. If you were to go back to the book of Joshua chapter 3, God's people entered the promised land in total for the first time. God stopped the waters of the Jordan River. They crossed on dry ground with the Ark of the Covenant, and they got to the other side, and the people praised God before they marched to Jericho. In the Old Testament book of Ezra, chapter 1, God's people entered Israel for the second time in mass after their exile. Their trip was financed by the pagan king Cyrus, and the names of all the families who made that trip are recorded in Ezra chapter 2. But in Matthew chapter 2, just one family enters Israel, and in my view, the miracle that happens is this. There is no king, no Caesar, no army that can stop the purposes of God. Herod followed his appetites and then was consumed by the judgment of God, but Joseph followed God's instructions and flourished under God's care. So here's this new perspective on power in the simple details of this story. Where does power reside in Matthew's account? Well, earthly power with its titles and money and minions is futile compared to the true omnipotence of God and the humble servants who obey Him. All Herod does is scheme. All Joseph does is obey. Did you know Joseph doesn't have any speaking parts in the New Testament? We don't have a single quote from Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. We have descriptions of what he's thinking. We have descriptions of his character. We have descriptions of four different holy visitations he has. And in every one of those visitations, angels give uh, explicit instructions. And the very next line is Joseph fulfilling those instructions uh, to the detail. Not a little bit, but every time the Lord speaks, Joseph does. He's a man of obedience. He doesn't say a lot, but we know what his heart is like. We know what his character is like, and we know why power resides where it does, not because he's powerful, but like we just sang, it's Christ in me. It's Joseph obeying the Word of God. Isn't it interesting how God overpowers Herod in this story. Look, Herod has advisors and military men, but God spoke to Joseph in a dream. He moved the family. That's all God does. He moves the family until the appointed time of Herod's death. And, and so is God any less powerful because he protected the holy family with a dream and a move instead of with angels with flaming swords and a battalion of ninjas? Uh, is God any less powerful because He moved in the simple? I, I think that shows us precisely how powerful God's power truly is. 
I mean, how often do we expect God to move mountains and instead He applies His omnipotence to moving pebbles and gets things done all the same? God employs His omnipotence in gloriously mundane ways. He impacts lives through simple things like words, acts of service, apologies, forgiveness, and prayer. Look, even our highest act of worship in the church is observed using the simplest elements of bread and a cup. That's it. And by eating and drinking these most simple acts, we remember the most profound truth of Christ's body and blood given for us. So here, with the coming of Christ, we have a whole new view of power. It doesn't reside with the titles and the money and the strength and the people. It resides with the humble servants of God who walk in His way. Jesus gives us a new view of sorrow, a new view of power. Finally, Jesus gives us a new view of the Savior. A new view of the Savior. Look, on this side of Easter... This is an old view for us, but at this point in Matthew's story, it's a new view of the Savior. Matthew gives us one more historical detail that explains why it is that the family settled in Nazareth. Joseph initially planned on returning to the region of Judea, perhaps even Bethlehem. Maybe they were going to settle there. But then he learned that after Herod's death, Herod's son Archelaus was put in charge of Judea. Archelaus was 19 years old. And uh, he soon um, took on the same reputation of his father as being uh, horrific in his brutality and unpopular among his people. He was a nightmare of a human being just like his father. And so Joseph's fears of returning to that region were well-founded. And so the angel of the Lord spoke again to Joseph in a dream. This was the fourth occurrence. And uh, the, the Lord directs Joseph to take the family back to Nazareth, Mary's hometown, which is not in the region of Judea, it's in the northern region of Galilee. Matthew tells us in verse 23 that this fulfills what was spoken through the prophets, that he, meaning Jesus, the Messiah, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, here's the problem with that quote from Matthew. There is no singular Old Testament prophecy that says the Messiah would be a Nazarene. So what did Matthew mean by this? Well, first of all, we need to be clear on this point. When he says the Messiah will be a Nazarene, he's not saying that the Messiah would belong to the sect of the Nazarenes like John the Baptist did. Jesus did not live under the strict and well-known rules of the Nazarite vow. So when he calls Jesus a Nazarene, what he means is that he is, he is from the town of Nazareth. And, and so uh, what does he mean by saying he comes from Nazareth? Well, notice in verse 23 that Matthew doesn't say that this was spoken by a prophet, but rather this was spoken through the prophets, plural. The fact that this is the only place in the entire gospel where Matthew makes reference to prophets in the plural tells us that he's not referencing one singular text or one singular prophecy, but rather he's summing up a theme that's found in several different prophetic texts. 
To say that he comes from Nazareth is to summarize this theme of what it means to be from Nazareth. What does it mean to be from Nazareth? Nazareth is a small town. The same way we described Bethlehem a little bit ago, Nazareth is the same. Historians say less than 500 people, most likely, a small town. It was four miles outside of a much larger town, a city even called Sepphoris, uh, about four miles away. And so uh, it was kind of a commuter town, a little bit, as much as you could commute in those days on foot. Uh, But you might live in Nazareth, and then you would go into the city to do your work. Now, to be from Nazareth, it meant something to people who knew Nazareth. Here's what it meant. Remember the story from John chapter 1. Jesus runs into a young man named Philip one day, and he says, I want you to come be my disciple. Come follow me. Philip's pumped up. He runs to tell his brother Nathaniel, Nathaniel, come with me, and, and let's follow this rabbi from Nazareth. And do you remember how Nathaniel responded? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It has a reputation. It is, it's like hillbilly country. Or, or just think, what is the town? Everyone in New England has a town that they hate. What's the town you hate? That's Nazareth. It's not hero town. It's not where messiahs come from. But it's where this messiah came from. So to come from Nazareth is to say he came from Nazareth is to say that, that he is not expected is to say something about how he's received, how he's thought of. Where does this idea that the Messiah would be despised or rejected or humble come from in the prophets? It's the summation of a lot of prophetic writing, in fact. From Zechariah chapter 9 to chapter 13, we have repeated references to how undesirable the Messiah is and how rejected he is and how humble he is. Uh, in Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, we have descriptions of the righteous sufferer. Uh, and then in Isaiah 52 and 53, we have these accounts of the total rejection of the Lord's Messiah. So when Matthew says the prophet said the Messiah would be a Nazarene, what he's telling us is that the Savior of mankind would be different from what anyone expected. Not only would he be humble, he would be despised and rejected even by his own. This uh, is the way salvation works. And this rejection is seen supremely at Christ's death on the cross. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to speak to you for just a moment. You need to get this understanding in you that the one who offers you salvation is one who was despised and rejected in his birth, his life, and his death. Not some chest-thumping hero full of muscles and, and might and popularity but one who throughout was rejected, for a time even rejected by his own family. We read just a moment ago of that historical moment called the Massacre of the Innocents. Jesus is the ultimate innocent who was sacrificed for your sin. To call him the ultimate innocent is not just to say he was without sin, which is true, he's without sin, but he is also full of righteousness, full of holiness. 
He's not a guy with just a, who made it through with just a blank slate. He is God in the flesh, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, the only one who could die for our sins and it be effective and it really work. And so he is God with flesh on, despised and rejected all the way to the cross. He died in your place for your sin and three days later he rose from the dead. And when you turn to him in faith, there's this great exchange that takes place. All of your sin is given to him. All of his holiness and righteousness is given to you. All of your punishment is taken by him. All of his reward is granted to you. You become his child and you are given an eternity with him because of his perfect righteousness credited to you. And as we read through Matthew's account of what the Savior is really like, we find this humble, rejected Messiah calling us to him. And I wonder if maybe you need to have a conversation with me or with someone you know who walks with Jesus today or in the week to come so that you would know what salvation is and how much you're loved by him. Look, if we were scripting this story, if we were writing it according to the things that we think valuable, we might craft a story where the Messiah, the Savior, is full of muscles and weapons. And that might be what a Roman Savior looks like, or a Greek Savior, or even an American Savior. But this cross, this is what a Nazarene Savior looks like. The one who laid everything down for you because he loves you. And he's obedient to the Father's will all the way to his death on the cross. So don't mistake his humility and his humiliation for weakness. Although he was slaughtered like a lamb, he is the mighty Lion of Judah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Savior of our souls. Everything's different because of Jesus. The coming of Christ reshapes our entire reality. His arrival gives us new understandings of sorrow, of power, and of the Savior himself. The death of the innocents, that taught us about the nature of true sorrow. It's temporary and finite nature. The death of guilty Herod taught us about the nature of true power. And the man from Nazareth is going to die, and he's going to teach us the way to the Father. Here's the tricky thing about our eyesight, our spiritual eyesight. It goes south rapidly on the daily. I had LASIK eye surgery, I don't know, like 17 years ago. I can still see leaves on trees and numbers on clocks, all right? Eyes are good. Don't need to have it again. Our spiritual vision is very different. We daily, daily need to sit with Christ in His Word and in prayer so that our vision would be corrected. Our eyes would be set on Him. We can talk about 2023 and, and all the mystery that lies ahead, the good and the challenges. I'm just telling you, we got to get through today before we start talking about the rest of the year. And even this very day, we need our eyes set on Christ. And if I want to see things the way Jesus does, if I, if I want to see things with the confidence and the hope and the strength and the glory of Christ, 
then brothers and sisters, how can I go a single day without sitting with Christ in His Word and in prayer? I've got to be with Him. I've got to have my eyes set. I need Him to do it. I can't bank on today's time with Christ to last days and weeks and months. Today, I've got what I need for today. And tomorrow, He'll meet me again and give me what I need for tomorrow. Day after day, brothers and sisters, we have to sit with the Holy One, look on Him, listen to Him, and have our eyes set. And when we look to Jesus, everything changes. When Jesus was dying on the cross, He hung on the cross between two thieves. And in Luke's account, one thief uh, insulted Jesus. The other thief defended Jesus. That thief said of Jesus that he was innocent. He doesn't deserve to be here. We belong to be here. He doesn't deserve to be here. And then the thief made a request of Jesus. He looked to Jesus and he said, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do you remember how Jesus responded? Luke 23, 43, Jesus said to that thief, truly I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. It's an audacious thing for one dying man to say to another dying man, a man who is seemingly stripped of all power, all dignity, everything we would consider human, stripped from him, and yet he promises paradise to another suffering, suffocating man next to him. It's audacious to say, unless you see things the way Jesus sees things. And the sorrow of death will be supplanted by the eternal joy of paradise. And the power of the state is nothing compared to the power of your Creator who declares you righteous and holy. And it's only the Savior from Nazareth who is able to tell even a guilty thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. So while we have many truly difficult moments ahead, our old way of seeing things might lead us in those difficult moments to experience unrestrained panic or fear or doubt. But when we see the world through the lens of Christ's incarnation, His death and His resurrection, then what even is death? For the thief on the cross, it was merely a moment before paradise. And so it is for all who belong to the Savior from Nazareth who see what Jesus saw. Let's pray together. So, Father, take our eyes and fix them on you. We look to our circumstances. We look to our fears. We look to our enemies, we, we look to the unknown, we, we look at our sin, we look at all these things and we find them to be big and scary and indeed they are from our perspective. But set our eyes on the eternal, the omnipotent, the compassionate Savior of our souls. God, we need your help today for this day. I know we don't have to beg you for it. Oh, it's ready. You, you extend it to us even now. Holy Spirit, help us to receive. So I pray for my brothers and sisters 
who walk this day carrying grief, carrying difficulties, sorrows, uh, having suffered injustice, what, whatever the darkness might be. Lord God, I pray that you would lift them into the light of Christ by his strength and power and love that we would walk in the hope of promises fulfilled. Give us your eyes, your strength, your feet. Give us your song that we would praise your name forever and ever. And Lord, in this room, undoubtedly, are those who don't know you as their Savior. Let them hear your call, soften their hearts. Lord, win them even this day as they turn to Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray.